Recently, I heard the story of Dawson Trotman. Many of you may know that name, may be familiar with his story. Uh, Dawson was an, a young Navy man, and when he was in the early 1930s, uh, as a younger, young labor yard worker, became inspired by a passage of Scripture, 2 Timothy 2.2. It reads, What you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who are able to teach others also. Uh, he began teaching high school students to discipline one another, disciple, excuse me, one another, and then, in 1933, extended his work into the United States Navy. Uh, he founded a group called the Navigators. The Navigators may be known to many of you today. He mentored one sailor, and then, who would turn, mentor another sailor on the boat, the USS West Virginia. Uh, before the ship sank in the Pearl Harbor, 125 men were growing in Christ and sharing their faith. During World War II, the navigator, excuse me, the navigator ministry spread to thousands in the United States uh, among different Navy ships as his ministry spread. The navigators continued their work up and through the 1950s uh, when they began to shift their focus to college campuses, particularly the University of Nebraska. Trotman died in 1956, recruiting a young girl from drowning in upstate, rescuing, excuse me, a girl in upstate New York. But their work went on. Today, hundreds, maybe even thousands of college campuses around the world have navigator groups a part of their ministry. Now, why would I share a story about Dawson Trotman? Why, why is his story so particularly important? Well, as we think about what it looks like to follow Jesus, we see Trotman gets the picture. We see Trotman doing something that the Bible calls us to do, and that is share our faith with others around us. In our passage this morning, we're going to think about what it means to follow Jesus very clearly. What Jesus does in this passage is a model for each and every one of us. What Jesus does in sharing his concerns with his, with his fellow disciples, when he goes and shares with them their wrongs and exposes their sin, well, brothers and sisters, that's an activity that God has invited all of us to participate in as a, in a body of believers. This morning, we're going to think about, in Mark's gospel, what not only who Jesus is, but what it looks like to follow him. Now, where have we been? Over the last few weeks, we've been looking at various stories in Mark's gospel centered around who Jesus is. So if you think back, maybe a few weeks ago, you were here in the feeding of the 5,000. Even if you weren't here, maybe you've heard that story before. Jesus broke bread from just a few loaves and a few fish, and he fed 5,000 people. What this pictured was Jesus' power to create out of nothing. It was a revealing of who Jesus was. But more than that, it was pointing to the role Jesus was now going to play. Jesus was the new Moses leading the new Israel through the Exodus. As we see the picture of them in the wilderness being fed, just like Moses fed the Israelites in the wilderness, just how Moses, through God, fed them the manna from heaven. So Jesus in the wilderness feeds the new Israel. And so Jesus here is presenting himself who he is. We see also Jesus, uh, through these various passages, has, has been doing some traveling. He, he's been uh, not on vacation, uh, but he's been traveling through various regions uh, in and around Galilee and in the outskirts of it. Mainly Gentile regions, that is, non-Jewish areas. Uh, they were 
teaching there in those areas. And, and it reminds us and it, and it teaches us that the gospel, the, the message of salvation through Christ, isn't only for ethnic Jews, that it's actually for all people and all nations. It, it's to bring light to all the nations. But we saw also in this tremendous success that Jesus was having among uh, those there in those Gentile regions that he was also having uh, some resistance. A few chapters back, we saw Jesus uh, being basically rejected by his own family. His family thought he was nuts. Jesus, you're, you're crazy. The things you're saying are crazy. You need to come inside and before they kill you. Right? His family utterly rejected him, and the town around him also rejected him. His own friends and family members uh, despised him. They thought he was crazy, a lunatic, a religious zealot. They thought that ultimately his teaching would lead to his death. But not only was his own friends and family rejecting him, if that was worse, the religious leaders rejected Jesus as well. Not all religious leaders there in Jerusalem, but many of them did. The scribes and the Pharisees rejected that Jesus was the Messiah. What they rejected more than just Jesus particularly was the kind of Messiah Jesus was going to be. Uh, they didn't like the idea that Jesus was going to come and suffer. They struggled to understand. They, they wanted a king. Just like the Israelites did back way back in the Old Testament. So them there, they wanted a warrior king to annihilate the Roman Empire. They hoped to see God's promises and the prophets fulfilled right then and there. And so they rejected Jesus and rejected his people. What we see then is this, this diabolical difference between those who follow Jesus and those who reject Jesus. So it's in the background of that that we come to Mark's gospel today. So I invite you, if you have a Bible, um, to turn to Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8. And I would just say that if you're not looking at the Bible, um, this sermon is going to be very boring to you. So if you don't have a Bible in front of you, I just encourage you, grab one, page 843. If you're not used to looking at the Bible, the large numbers are the chapter numbers, and those small numbers are the verse numbers. So just take your eyes, look at verse 14. Verse 14. Mark chapter 8 and verse 14. Now they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had one loaf with them in the boat. And Jesus cautioned them, saying, Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Have you not eyes to see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the loaves for the 5,000, how many basketful of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, 12. And the seven for the 4,000, how many basketfuls of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? 
Now, we're coming to this passage having really spent a lot of time in Mark's gospel, and, and I don't expect you to remember much of what we've thought about or looked at over the last you know, nine months or so, but I think to help us understand a little bit more of Jesus' um, irritation, if you will, with the disciples, and maybe understanding maybe your own confusion as you think about this text, let's back up a little bit in the story. Go back to Mark chapter 1, if you will. Mark chapter 1 and verse 16. So just turn back just a handful of pages. Page 836. We're told in Mark chapter 1 and verse 16 that Jesus called his disciples. So these men that are in the boat with Jesus, Jesus picked them. (laughs) They didn't pick Jesus. This isn't like uh, a situation where they wanted to follow Jesus so they sought him out. No, Jesus sought them out and then they followed him. And Mark tells us about this in Mark chapter 1 and verse 16. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, Jesus saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Well, there you go. So just so you know, if you're not familiar with the story, these men, most of them in the boat, were fishermen. Okay? That's very important to, to understand our, our story. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. Very important to understand as well. Their mission was to then do what Jesus did. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, and they were in their boats mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. So again, this is just a short story uh, just to illustrate how these men, these, these 12 disciples, got in that boat with Jesus that day. Right? So this is sometimes later. Our passage is maybe a year or two, maybe even three years after this, this event where they were called to follow Jesus. So they've been with Jesus. They, they literally slept with Jesus. They slept in the same home as Jesus. They shared meals with Jesus every day for three years. Right? And so we could conclude as we look at some of these stories. So let's just look at some of them, if you will. Uh, look, just scan with your eyes over to verse 40. Verse 40 on the next page. And a leper came to him, imploring him and kneeling before him. If you will have pity, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, Jesus stretched out his hand, touched him and said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him and he was made clean. So we see Jesus was displaying his power, his authority over sickness to his disciples. His disciples were there. They saw all of this. They witnessed the ministry and the miracles of Jesus. This isn't second-hand information they received. This isn't as if someone told them about what Jesus had done, maybe like you and I today. We're reading uh, Mark's account of what happened 2,000 years ago. These men witnessed them. Uh, let's consider another one. Turn over, if you will, uh, to verse or chapter 3. Chapter 3. Again, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand, and they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath. That is, the Pharisees, they were trying to attack him, uh, so that they might accuse him, see? And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, "It is is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. You notice that the the Pharisees had hard hearts. And he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel, listen, with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. So we see that the disciples are there witnessing this, but we also see the reaction of the Pharisees. We see the reaction of the Pharisees. 
they got together with the Herodians. Now, the Herodians were the, the, the ruling power there in that region. They were like little puppets for, the, for, for Rome. They really didn't have real power. They were just kind of little puppet figures there uh, in that region. And the, and the Herodian dynasty uh, were in power, kind of, sort of, in power, kind of like the queen has power, but not, didn't really have power, right? Parliament has power. Um, and so there, the Herodians were there, and the Herodians and the Pharisees get together and plot how to kill Jesus. Again, helpful as we think about what this passage means. Let's just look at maybe one other example in chapter 4. In chapter 4, and verse 35, this one particularly focused on the disciples. On that day when evening came, he said to them, let's go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filled. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said to them, Why are you afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Oh, brother, brothers and sisters, that is the question that overrides these verses. Who is this? Who is this man who is in this boat with his disciples? That is what Mark is writing to us about. Mark is writing to tell us who Jesus is. That Jesus is the Christ, the, the anointed one, the Messiah. The one that has been called by God to save sinners. Jesus is the Christ, but He's not only a man. He is the God-man. He's both fully God and fully man. That is what Mark is laboring to tell us this morning. That this Christ has come to call sinners to repentance and faith. And that's what he does in this passage this morning. What we see in this passage, if you could maybe perhaps summarize it, is the need for genuine faith in Jesus. And also the need for our faith to be nurtured. What we see Jesus doing there in this boat with his disciples in chapter 8 is a nurturing of spiritual blindness. They saw, but they didn't really see. They were hearing all these things, but they really weren't hearing. They were missing it. And so we see Jesus lovingly and patiently nurtures the faith of his disciples. So what can we learn from a passage like this? How, how do we understand this passage? Just four thoughts for our time together today. First, we see a warning about the dangers of unbelief. A warning. Look at verse 14. Now they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Now what is going on here? What? This is 
is somewhat confusing. The disciples are talking about bread, and Jesus starts talking about yeast or leaven. What's going on? I think central to understanding this passage is this, this understanding of bread. What's going on here? Well, Jesus is using bread, or the lack thereof, as a means to help teach his disciples more about who he is, and really, honestly, more about themselves and their issues and their unbelief. We see here that we're told by Mark that they didn't have any bread or, or that they only had one loaf with them. They only had one loaf. So what do we say? They maybe just had meager proportions. They, they didn't have very much with them. They only had this one little loaf. Matthew, in his telling of this same story, he says that they didn't have any bread. And so you might look at that and say, well, is there conflict here in the Bible? One says they didn't have any. One says they had one. What's going on here? I think the point that Mark is making here, you know, some have argued that perhaps he's talking about Jesus. Jesus is the one loaf. Or if they just look to Jesus, then, you know, I don't really think so. He doesn't really call Jesus the bread of life ever in Mark's gospel. Now, John does. So that seems somewhat foreign to what Mark is trying to do here. I think what's happening here is Mark is sort of highlighting they didn't really have much. And then God, Jesus is going gonna, is gonna to kind of take that little and make a lot out of it. Just like he did in the feeding of the 5,000 and the feeding of the 4,000. So if you will, take those two feedings, the feeding of the 5,000, where he took a little and he made a lot. And again, in the feeding of the 4,000, he took a little and he made a lot. As sort of the backdrop to what's happening here, right? Because remember, who was there? The disciples were there. They saw Jesus take a little and make a lot out of almost nothing. And we could say the same thing here. So they're complaining. They're, they're, they forgot to bring bread. That's sort of the context of what is happening here. They're in the boat. They're alone. They don't have anything. And Jesus cautions them. Or more literally, he spells out for them what's going on here. Right? Um, so maybe your, your translation says something a little stronger like commanded or, or warned or cautioned. Right? He spells out for his disciples their problem. <laughs> he spells out for them what they, uh, where their problem is, excuse me. So sort of maybe perhaps how maybe if your, your wife maybe or, or spouse has to spell out things for you on a, like a piece of paper. So when I go shopping, you know, often I'm like, I tell my wife, they just spell out clearly what I need to get. Text me. Don't just assume that I'm going to remember. Because when I get there, I get distracted. I'm focused on that. You know, I'm like, look, there's Oreos. We could buy those. Um, I don't get what's on the list. And so um, lists are helpful, right? And that's what Jesus is doing. He's spelling it out. He's like, disciples, listen, this is your problem. This is the problem. And then notice the strength by which he says, he says, watch out, beware. Literally, look out, look out. Uh, This is very strong language Jesus is using here. He's saying, hey, you need to wake up. This is a big problem. This is a strong warning by Jesus. Jesus is using a very forceful way to waken them up to the seriousness and the danger of unbelief. Jesus exposes their unbelief in that they're complaining about not having any provisions. The disciples are worried about external matters when Jesus is worried about their hearts. They're worried about do we have enough bread when Jesus is worried about their eternal soul. Jesus is worried, do you have saving faith? We think particularly as one of those disciples is there, Judas Iscariot, who's listening to Jesus and does not hear this warning and goes on in his unbelief and rebellion against God. Jesus says he cautions them about leaven. About leaven. 
or yeast. Maybe your translation says yeast. Uh, sure, many of you, if you're bakers uh, or you know, uh, somewhat uh, uh, capable of working in the kitchen, um, you know yeast. Uh, you use it to bake bread. It's that wonderful smell that you, you smell when you bake bread, that yeast. It's a wonderful thing. But in the Bible, it's not so wonderful. It's actually only one time in all of Scripture that yeast is used in a, in a positive way. Oftentimes, it, yeast is used to refer to evil, you know, to refer to sin. Now, why? Well, because just a little of it goes a long way. The point that Jesus is making here is that a little bit of yeast leavens the whole loaf. Just a, just a little bit. That's, Paul says the same thing in First Corinthians. Just a little bit of sin will spread throughout. We might maybe use a, a, a parallel illustration of that would be cancer, right? We don't, we don't go to the doctor and when diagnosed with a little bit of cancer, just say, oh, it's, yeah, it's just a little, no, no big deal. No, no, no. A little bit of cancer is a big deal, right? We recognize that. We recognize just a little goes along, you know, along too much. Just a little is too much. And, and it's the same thing with yeast. You, you say just a little bit of yeast in your life, in your soul, goes a long way. But what is Jesus talking about? What does he mean? What, what yeast? What, what is this yeast that he refers to? What, what is it that Jesus is, is sort of attacking here about the Pharisees? What, what, what yeast of the Pharisees? What is that? The yeast and uh, the leaven of... What, what is this? Well, I think just to summarize his first unbelief. Unbelief. Uh, Jesus has confronted the Pharisees. He showed them and taught them who he is and they have not believe. They, they have remained stubborn and hard-hearted in their unbelief and opposition to Jesus. We see the evidence manifested in their life, their unbelief, is manifested in their self-righteousness. They go around thinking that they've earned salvation by work. That somehow their personal performance pleases God. That the harder they work at being good, the more pleased God is with them. And so the, the foundational piece of their relationship with God isn't Christ or God's promises, but rather their own righteousness, their own goodness, if you will. And so maybe a familiar way to describe this is the, is the publican and the Pharisee, the, the sinner, the tax collector. You know, the he's sinner, he's recognized he's, he's humble before Christ, God, he's praying, oh, I'm unworthy, and then here comes the Pharisee, right? And he puffed chest, I stand, you know, I'm not like that other guy down there, I'm not like him, um, I, I do good things, I fast, right? The foundation of their relationship with God was themselves. But all that was, was a manifestation of their unbelief in the promises of God. They didn't believe God could save through a promise. They thought they had to do something. They thought they had to manufacture some evidence in their life to sort of hold before God like, like he's this evil dictator and, and just please, please forgive me. Look at this good I've done. But that's not who God is. But what about Herod? How does Herod play in all of this? The Herodians haven't really been mentioned since chapter 6 when they beheaded John the Baptist. What is it about Herod that was so evil, so wicked? I think it's the same. Unbelief. They didn't believe in Jesus. 
They would not trust. We're told in other Gospels that Jesus uh, was able to share with uh, with Herod more about the Gospel. We are told that uh, there was ample opportunity for them to hear who Jesus was and his Messiahship, but they rebelled. They rejected. And we could summarize their sin of unbelief in their worldliness and their licentiousness, right? I mean, the Herodians could be defined by power, sex, and money. That's what drove them. That's what we mean by worldliness, right? That drive for power, the drive, obviously sexual immorality ran rampant in them. Herod's married to his brother's wife. We see then also money, wealth, and, and notoriety and prestige. We see that big banquet that they threw uh, in the beheading of John the Baptist. I think fundamentally, the issue with both of them, or to summarize the leaven, is the fact that they didn't want the Savior that Jesus claimed to be. They had no room in their hearts for Jesus. What do they both have in common? Neither one needed Jesus. The self-righteous one didn't need Jesus. The basis of their relationship with God was self-righteousness, was their own goodness. They didn't have no need for Jesus. Maybe perhaps it was Herod's worldliness and money and power and prestige. His sexual gratifications, those things are the what? Satisfied. He had no need for Jesus. Perhaps this morning you come with no need for Jesus. Maybe you too, like Herod or the Pharisees, come hardened in your own heart. You hear this warning this morning. Don't play with the fire of unbelief and doubt. I find this particularly important among Christians this morning. Brothers and sisters, do not persevere in doubt. Do not be persistent in doubt and unbelief. It is dangerous to play with unbelief. We see the danger here. Jesus warns us of the danger and the spiraling effect that unbelief has upon the soul. But we also see Jesus' patience with his disciples. This isn't a, a condemnation upon his disciples. No, this is a patiently loving Savior who gives a word of grace. Look at verse 17. Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Mark tells us in verse 16 that they, in hearing about this leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod, that they obviously didn't understand what Jesus was talking about. And they were very confused. And so they began to discuss, literally debate among themselves, hey, what's the deal about not having any bread? Look, we have no bread. This is a dire situation. This guy's talking about uh, leaven over here. We're not quite sure what he's referring to. And uh, is he talking about the fact we have no bread? Are we talking about bread here? Are we talking about food here today? Is that, is that what it is that, that Jesus is referring to? And so they're utterly confused. And in the midst of that, Jesus comes and says, Look, I'm aware of your confusion. Let me help you understand your confusion about these things. Friend, if you come here this morning just completely confused about Jesus, uh, there can be great comfort for you. That through the Spirit, you can have understanding today. We're going to see in a moment one way that we can respond to this passage is through prayer. Praying, God, open my eyes to see the foolishness of my life. I I don't understand Jesus. I don't understand the gospel. I, I don't understand. Help my 
unbelief. That's a prayer you could pray today. We see also Jesus prods their heart. Jesus prods their heart, exposing, if you will, their sin of unbelief. Notice these questions. These questions are like hammering a nail. Just imagine Jesus, bam, 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 bam. Look at him. First he says, why? Why are you discussing? Why are you discussing that you have no bread? Boom. Do you not yet perceive or understand? Boom. Are your hearts hardened? Boom. Have your eyes, having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? Boom, boom. He's prodding their hearts. He's exposing them. Then he turns their attention. He says, when I broke the loaves, how many basketfuls? When I broke the loaves for the 4,000, how many? Are you still without understanding? Oh, these questions sought to prod their hearts. Sought to expose their unbelief to them. Sought to show them that they were in sin. Central to this is Jesus' revelation of who He is. Jesus isn't trying to hide the truth from them. He's using these questions like peeling an onion and getting to the center of it. Getting to the heart of the matter. Layer by layer, he's peeling back their unbelief and exposing it and showing them, look, here is your problem right here in the center. You don't understand me. You don't understand who I am. You don't understand what I've come to do. Their problem was that they were seeing all the evidence. They were hearing all the evidence. But they were missing the point. They were missing what that evidence pointed to, or who that evidence pointed to. They were missing that Jesus wasn't just meeting people's physical needs. Jesus wasn't just uh, healing sick people for the sake of healing sick people, because he was compassionate. Jesus was doing everything he did to reveal who he was. He was pointing them to who he came to be. Jesus identifies them with the Pharisees and the Sadducees and with Herod. He says to them, having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? Jesus says, look, you saw it, but you didn't see it. You heard it, but you didn't hear it. This is a familiar word that Jesus used. If you turn back just for a moment to Mark chapter 4, again, just understanding that this is not foreign to the disciples, they've heard this story before. They've heard these lines before. And when he was alone, excuse me, verse 10 of chapter 4. And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. And he said to them, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables. So we see that Jesus is is saying that those who can't hear are outsiders. And he says, so that, and he quotes Isaiah, so that they may indeed see but not perceive, 
and may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. Quoting Isaiah 6, 9. Jesus is saying that the Israelites were outside the covenant promise because they could not understand who Jesus was. They were hardened in their hearts, and he is applying that same thing to his disciples. Now, they heard that. Those that hear but cannot hear, and those who see. and get, This is a frightening exposure here. Now, we understand that this wasn't the final day for the disciples, that their faith were, would continue. They, they weren't so persistent in their unbelief that they uh, were not saved. No, we believe that they were saved genuinely uh, and that they're progressively growing in their understanding of faith. But we see here that Jesus warns them and prods their unbelief that, hey, when you don't believe me and my promises, when you're worried about little things like not having bread, well, you're just like the world around you. You're just like the outsiders who don't have the covenant promises that you have. Friends, we are reminded in this passage that proximity to Jesus does not guarantee belief. I think one of the things that have staggered me as I've studied Mark's gospel is how many people rub shoulders with Jesus, talk to Jesus, were maybe even healed by Jesus, yet were persistent in their unbelief. Friends, do not believe the lie that just hanging around Christians will somehow make you okay before God. That somehow just rubbing up against the Bible without genuinely trusting and repenting of your sins will save you. Oh, friends, Judas was in the boat that day. He heard these warnings, but he didn't hear them. And may that be a warning to you today. Friends, do you recognize the foolishness of sin? The foolishness of unbelief? The fact that one could see these miraculous things, having participated in the miracles and yet not believe in Jesus, or at least who Jesus is? What a warning to our own hearts. Having perhaps experienced some grace in our past, we today are found in unbelief. Friend, maybe you come this morning doubting whether God could save a sinner like you. Maybe you recognize and feel the weight of your sin today. You're overcome by it. You're almost unable to even move, paralyzed, if you will, by it. This is the effect of sin. Sin kills us. In fact, the Bible tells us that the wages of sin, the, 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 the life lived in rebellion against God, deserves death. God's good and righteous judgment against sinners is, is eternal condemnation. But Christ came to save sinners. Christ, the, the Son of God, the perfect and holy one, eternal Son of God, both fully man and fully God, He came and He lived a perfect life. The life you and I should have lived in perfect obedience and submission to Christ. 
or to God, his Father? Christ did. And he died at the death you and I deserve for our sins. And his resurrection is, is the proof, the seal, the vindication that God's power is strong. That he can save. And he died on the cross for all those who would repent of their sins and trust in Christ. So I invite you today to turn from sin, from the foolishness of unbelief, and believe in Christ. Trust Christ. We see lastly that Jesus reminds them of their experience of grace. He reminds them of their experience of grace. Look with me in verse 18. Halfway through Jesus says, And do you not remember? Do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many basketfuls of broken pieces did you take up? Then he said to him, Twelve. And the seven for the 4,000, how many basketful pieces did you take up? And they said, Seven. Remember? Don't you remember what happened? Notice first the detail by which Peter remembers this story. Peter is Mark's writing companion in writing this gospel. Mark is uh, using much of Peter's memory of the events. Peter was there. Notice the detail in which Peter remembers the story. First, is there are these baskets. And in the second verse, there's these large baskets, as the Holman Christian translates it. The ESV kind of leaves it obscure there. But there, there are these little baskets, and there are these really big baskets that they picked up, as we looked like at last week. Friends, this is an accurate eyewitness account of what happened. Peter giving us that eyewitness account. And notice the vividness by which, and the emphasis on how many, not how many were fed, but how much was left over. Notice Jesus doesn't emphasize so much how much was fed, but how much was left over. It tends to lend itself to think that it's the, it's the surplus that he wants them to think about. It's the, the abundance, the leftovers, that was the important part of the miracle. When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many were taken up? He said 12. They said 12. And the 4,000, how many were taken up? Seven. There was a lot left over when they started with a little. This was all pointing to who Jesus was. Jesus was the creator, the one who could create out of nothing. Surely, he could create some bread for his disciples that are worrying about the wrong things there in that boat. But notice more clearly what he says to them. How many basketfuls of broken pieces did you take up? And in the 4,000, how many basketfuls did you take up? Remember? Remember you had them in your hands? Remember you picked them up? You saw them? Having done something sort of etches things into our memories, right? This is why when we, in the trades train people, we don't uh, just kind of give them a book and say, read that book, and then you come and you'll learn how to do electric, you know, electrical work or, or plumbing work. No, what do we do? We show them, right? Hands-on training. Uh, most 
fields, probably uh, more than any, has the on-the-job training, right? Whether you're a secretary or a, a scientist or an engineer, there is on-the-job training, right? You learn how to do your job by not watching others do it, but by doing it, right? And, it, and it, you remember, you're like, oh, yeah, yeah, I remember. So when I face this problem, that's how I work that problem out. Oh, I remember that in my training. Oh, yeah, I haven't seen that in a while. But now yeah, in my training, I learned that when I have this particular case, friends, this is nothing more than that. His disciples were trained into who he was. They participated in the miracle, yet still couldn't see who he was. Friends, this all demonstrates the need for the Spirit. The need for Christ to patiently disciple our souls. So briefly, just some application first. The need to repent of unbelief. Perhaps you've come this morning just needing to repent. To encourage you to turn from unbelief today. And to trust in Christ. Secondly, pray for spiritual understanding. If you come confused about Christ and about the gospel, about God's word, friends, just pray. God, help me understand. Help me to know you. Thirdly, and I think most importantly, is that we need to be discipled. We see here the need to be discipled. Friends, the Christian life is not one lived in isolation from other Christians. You just can't go it alone. And that's what we see here. Jesus doesn't leave his disciples alone in their unbelief, but he disciples them. He teaches them how to follow him. Friends, we need to be about sharing with others the faith of Christ. Maybe you've come this morning doubting who Jesus is. We're going to pray for you. Maybe you've come this morning perhaps just openly defiant about who Christ is, not, not wanting to believe his precious promises. Maybe you're a Christian this morning to just say, you know, God, I don't believe that you're, you're able to get me through this trial or, or get me through this difficulty. Or I just don't believe that you could save someone as bad as me. Look at my life. Well, friend, may we believe in the power of the sovereign God today. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we are overwhelmed by your grace today in Christ. And we recognize our need to be shepherd. Father, we all come carrying burdens of unbelief, perhaps. We doubt your promises. We pray that you might nurture our souls by your spirit. Help our unbelief. Father, help those that come today that are maybe confused about who you are. Confused about who Christ is and what he has come to do. Perhaps there's some here today that are just persistent in unbelief. We, I pray that you, by your spirit, would break through their hard hearts and cause them to believe in the, in the glorious gospel of Christ. And Father, may we take up the mantle to make disciples in our lives. May we develop relationships with one another and encourage one another to faithfulness of God. Lord, help us in our unbelief, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.